Hi, my name is Cliff Brangwin from Princeton University and HHMI, and I'm happy to tell you about some exciting developments on liquid phase condensation in living cells. So we're all familiar with the myriad uh, different forms um, of structure in biology, beautiful things like uh, giraffes or this, uh, my favorite uh, uh, vegetable, uh, Romanesco, or lobsters, uh, mushrooms, or organisms like you and I, uh, or, or uh, apes, gorillas, and so forth. Uh, it's really amazing to think about how uh, the building blocks of life are able to, to build all of these different types of structures uh, that make up the natural world. In some ways, we can think about this process as akin to uh, the assembly of um, man-made machines, things like uh, this automobile. And so the automobile, of course, has many thousands of different parts that are assembled together uh, to build this structure. And so in biology, we're asking questions about how the parts of biological systems uh, come together to assemble all of these different beautiful structures that we see in the natural world. And there are many open questions about how that works uh, in, in science that we're, we're trying to tackle. Now, um, this analogy between uh, the parts in, in biological, in, in uh, man-made machines and the way in which they come together to build things like an automobile and, and the, the way in which the building blocks of, of, of life work is really, a, I would say, an incomplete uh, analogy. It's a useful way to start to think about it, but it's probably um, a, a flawed analogy and the reason for that is because um, in biological systems, it's much more complex and, and rich in terms of how the, the components come together to build these structures. Um, this is a, a beautiful um, simulation of the building blocks of life, things like protein and RNA and DNA. The way in which they come together to, to, to form biological structures is um, not like individual parts snapping together in static structures, like in, uh, as we would see for an automobile, but really dynamic, wet, uh, chaotic, squishy, and, and constantly fluctuating. And yet, these molecules in this wet, dynamic soup are still able to come together and give rise to coherent motion, things like uh, the leading edge of this cell that's protruding out uh, to migrate and ultimately giving rise to uh, the migratory behavior in this classic movie of a neutrophil chasing a bacterium, uh, which is important for the immune response in our bodies. Um, there's higher order organization. This is gastrulation in the frog Xenopus, so many cells coming together uh, to form complex three-dimensional structures. And it really is amazing to think that this uh, dynamic wet soup of, of molecules can give rise to these coherent behaviors. One aspect of this that's particularly interesting is that uh, biological organization occurs across a host of different uh, length scales. So we can think about organisms uh, uh, as structures like you and I uh, that are on, on, let's say, the meter scale, uh, things that we can see with our, our eyes and, and have a lot of familiarity with. If we zoom in using microscopy, advanced microscopy techniques, we can see that inside of organisms there are cells. So this is down by uh, a thousandfold or, or more in length scale, as we zoom in, we see individual cells uh, that are making up the organism. 
We can zoom in even further within cells and see organelles uh, that compartmentalize and organize the contents of the cell to, to enable biological function. Zooming in even further within organelles, we see uh, these molecules, like in this movie I showed you, so the, the, the sort of ultimate building blocks um, that, that allow uh, propagation of order kind of up these length scales to form the coherent structures uh, such as you and I, the soft, squishy robots that we represent. In this talk, I'm going to focus on uh, this kind of intermediate length scale, the mesoscale of organization within living cells, which occurs through these structures called organelles. Now, organelles um, are like the cell's little organs. Uh, that's where the name comes from. And these are structures with funny names like uh, the Golgi apparatus and the endoplasmic reticulum. Um, they function to compartmentalize the cell, uh, to, to give rise to structure within and, and, and organize the cell, to increase the reaction rates by uh, sequestering molecules within these different uh, compartments of the cell, and also to store molecules for, for later use, for example. In general, these structures are playing key roles in organizing the contents of living cells, uh, much like uh, our organs organize the contents of our bodies and, and uh, in particular processes throughout the body. So the conventional view of organelles is, is uh, something that we see in, in for example, in, in uh, high school biology textbooks, is that these represent um, their membrane-bound vesicle-like structures. Um, this is a, a useful way of thinking about um, organelles because we know that uh, vesicles um, can be formed in, in simple systems from phospholipids and the way the phospholipids come together to form these well-defined uh, boundaries that, that uh, determine the, you know, the boundary between the inside of the organelle and the outside. Uh, these structures are much like soap bubbles uh, that we're familiar with from everyday life, um, you know, well-defined compartments with an inside and outside. Now, it turns out uh, that's just one type of organelle or body within the cell. There's a whole other class, which we refer to as membraneless organelles or condensates, inside of living cells, that these structures do not have membranes like the, like the organelles that I just told you about in the last slide. These include things like uh, pea granules, these germline pea granules, the green puncta, which I'll, I'll tell you about in the next uh, few slides. Uh, processing bodies in the, in the, the middle uh, image here, these green puncta, which are involved in mRNA turnover and decay. And then inside the nucleus of living cells, there are many different types of membraneless uh, organelles that are playing important roles in regulating uh, the genome and gene expression. Now, these structures are really particularly interesting to us because um, even though there is no uh, phospholipid boundary between the inside and the outside, they still represent coherent assemblies that play key biological roles um, through the, the dynamic assembly of molecules, as you see in the, in the schematic in the lower left here. So we'd like to try to understand these structures and how they, how they form and what they're doing uh, for, for, for the function of cells. Now, in this field, we're asking um, uh, a lot of questions about, about these, uh, these kinds of structures. There are many unanswered questions. Um, we're particularly interested in asking what kinds of physical models can explain intracellular organization by these membraneless assemblies. So can we think about um, predictive, quantitative, mathematical, physical models that can explain uh, the organization of these kinds of structures? Now, 
the second part of this is, can these models, if, if we're successful in, in trying to address the first question, can these models inform our understanding of cell function and dysfunction? Of course, um, cells are doing their thing and, and um, can, can um, uh, be healthy and, and divide and, and grow and, and play the, the normal roles in our bodies, but we know that those processes can also go awry in many diseases, uh, for example, cancer or neurodegenerative diseases. And we'd like to understand how um, this kind of mesoscale intracellular organization uh, is playing a role in both physiology, healthy cells, and also in disease. Um, now, we and others are, are taking inspiration from other fields in trying to address these questions, in particular from the field of soft matter physics, um, which was where I, I trained as, as a graduate student. Soft matter physics is uh, a really rich area that deals with many different uh, types of materials, but they're unified in that they um, are soft with respect to uh, deformation, and usually we're thinking about mechanical perturbation. So if we try to push on the material, it's easily deformable. But it could also be um, materials that are sensitive to elect uh, electrical fields or magnetic fields and so forth. Um, and one of the favorite examples of, of, uh, of, of soft, uh, soft matter that, that I, I like is are foams. And, you know, foams really are remarkable because they're materials that are made up of something like 95% gas and 5% liquid, and yet they come together in a way that forms an elastic solid albeit a soft one, one that's easily deformable, but it really is an elastic solid. So that, th this is something that I think escapes us in, in our uh, simple notions of different states of matter that one can take without chemical reactions, 95% uh, gas and 5% liquid, and make a solid. And that is, that is pretty interesting. Um, so there's this idea of emergence, emergent behaviors when you get materials coming together um, that, that have these uh, soft, soft character. Polymers, polymeric systems, I'll tell you about in this talk as well. Uh, we have viscoelasticity and kind of emergent behavior um, on these different length scales. Silly putty, for example. Uh, emulsions, we're familiar with oil and water emulsions. Uh, colloidal uh, assemblies, which are sort of macromolecular assemblies that are useful for engineering applications and also found in the natural world. Liquid crystals or uh, granular matter, things like sandcastles that have this... Uh, soft um, assembly and, and fragility and emergence, some of the themes that come up in soft matter physics. Now, um, taking inspiration from, uh, from soft matter physics, we've, we've been uh, trying to tackle these questions about um, membraneless organelles and cells, these condensates. Um, one of the first systems that we started to study in this area that really got me interested in these structures um, was in the C. elegans embryo. So this is, um, C. elegans is, a, is an important model system uh, used in many thousands of labs around the world. It's a, it's a small worm. Uh, this is the embryo of C. elegans, which contains these uh, membraneless organelles called uh, P. granules. And these P. granules, you can see uh, in green here uh, throughout the cytoplasm, are RNA and protein-rich assemblies. Um, uh, they're implicated in specification of germ cells, so uh, controlling the, the fate of the cells that, uh, that emerge through cell divisions and growth of this embryo. Uh, and it's important to try to understand these structures because similar uh, granules are found in essentially all animals. So we'd like to, like to understand uh, what these things are and how they assemble and how they're, they're playing their functional roles in cells. Um, now, when I first uh, started thinking about this, uh, these structures, I became very interested in, in something that happens in the very early stages of embryogenesis, 
where, uh, as you see in this image on, on, the, on the left, um, pea greenos are initially distributed throughout the embryo, but uh, over the course of about 10 minutes through development, they end up uh, being localized to the posterior of the embryo. Now, this is important because when the embryo divides in two, um, it's going to divide down the middle, and only the cell that, um, that uh, is on the right is, that contains these pea granules, that, that's, that, that cell will contain pea granules, and the other cell will not. Uh, and that's the progenitor germ cell. And so, we asked a very simple question about this process. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, asking, really, the simplest possible question uh, at the start of a research project. And in this case, we asked the question, how are these pea granules segregated to one end of the embryo? What is the physical and chemical mechanisms by which that can take place? And can we try to understand that process um, using concepts and techniques and approaches uh, from physics, uh, for example? Now, in the course of, uh, of uh, this development, uh, uh, the, the segregation of pea granules to the posterior of the embryo, um, something really interesting happens that we started to, to see when we uh, very carefully quantified the dynamics. What we found is that early in the process, these pea granules are actually disassembling uh, throughout the embryo. So all of the pea granules are just slowly shrinking in time, as you see in this plot of the intensity or, or size of these structures as a function of time. Uh, but as you go forward and the embryo starts to polarize and, and define a distinct anterior versus posterior end, what happens is that the pea granules that are in the posterior, which are labeled in red, start to actually stabilize and even grow in time, whereas the pea granules that are in the anterior half, uh, labeled in, in blue, they continue to shrink and go away. In the end, what that leads to is an embryo where there are only pea granules in the posterior, but not in the anterior end. So the segregation process reflects a spatial and temporal control of, of the assembly of these structures. Now, in the course of these studies, um, we started to ask questions um, thinking about the material properties, the material physics of, of, of these kinds of structures. We asked, what are these as physical objects, these things that are growing and shrinking? Uh, what do they feel like? And, and, and uh, can that give us some insights into the assembly and disassembly? And we did a very simple experiment, um, uh, again, in the, in the spirit of asking simple questions and trying to do simple experiments. What we did is we took the embryo, and, and, and this is actually a different part of the worm, it's called the C. elegans gonad, where the pea granules um, are collected around the nuclei in this, uh, in this tissue, and we squashed um, that tissue and induced shear stresses. And what that, what that uh, showed us was that these pea granules, uh, they flowed and dripped and wet and de-wet the nuclei much like uh, uh, conventional liquids that we're used to seeing, things like oil and water. Um, and so this was really fascinating to us. What this said is that, although they're called pea granules, and we had a sense that they were somehow little pebbles, um, in fact, um, these, these assemblies are really dynamic liquid states uh, of RNA and protein that is condensed uh, within a living organism. And so um, this led to a, a model for how, how this pea-granule segregation works. So the pea-granules are segregated to the posterior of the embryo through a kind of phase transition, what's referred to formally as liquid-liquid phase separation. One can think about uh, how this works as, as being something like uh, if we were to take a, a box of water vapor uh, at, at a uniformly high temperature and then cool down uh, the end of the box, 
um, what would happen is the water vapor would condense into these liquid droplets and it would drive a flux of material into the posterior. So we proposed this as, a, as, as the mechanism, this liquid-liquid this, uh, phase separation uh, driving segregation of pea granules in this paper. And, and uh, my postdoc advisor, Tony Hyman, and I uh, put forth this idea, um, which has turned out to be very powerful uh, for thinking about these kinds of structures. So what are these phase transitions all about? Um, we're actually quite familiar with phase transitions from our everyday experience uh, dealing, with, um, dealing with materials that are found in the natural world, non-living materials, for example, water. So we know that um, molecules can, can be in a gaseous phase. So the gas state where they're at very low concentration and they're unorganized with respect to one another and they're, they're sort of dancing around and forming... Uh, this low low concentration state of matter that we're familiar with, uh, for example, in air, which we usually don't see. Uh, and in fact, the only reason we can see anything in this picture is because the gas uh, of, of water molecules has started to condense into a liquid state. Now, the liquid state um, is still an unorganized state of matter, but the molecules now have all condensed uh, into high con- a high concentration form um, that we're familiar with flows and, and drips and, and uh, you know, we can swim in it in the summertime and all the things that we're familiar with for the, the liquid state of water, for example. We know, though, that um, there's another transition that c- can occur where these molecules can snap together and form uh, solids, in this case a crystalline solid uh, form of water, which is ice. Um, and so uh, we're familiar with this from... Uh, from uh, snow in the winter or putting uh, water in in an ice tray in the freezer and coming back and finding that it's now solid. What's interesting and and noteworthy here is that um, these these, um, different molecular organizations that occur um, occur in the absence of any chemical changes. So the molecules are identical in in each of these cases that you see. Uh, The only difference is that uh, their organization with respect to one another has drastically changed as a function of temperature, pressure, concentration, and so forth. Now, we talk a lot about water as as an example because it's familiar to us from everyday experience, but it's important to note um, that macromolecules also are known to undergo these kinds of phase transitions. In fact, it's been known for many decades uh, that macromolecules, including proteins, uh, biological molecules, can undergo similar types of phase transitions when purified and, and put into a test tube. Uh, in fact, structural biologists know about these kinds of phase transitions from their work in trying to uh, coax proteins to, uh, to tr- transition into a crystalline solid state because that's important for X-ray crystallography. Um, it's also known that in some cases, proteins would form these liquid-like or gel-like states, which for structural biology purposes is, is not useful uh, but is, is, is interesting in, in, in itself. Um, and so what we, what we think is going on here is the same kinds of transitions that have been known uh, for in vitro proteins uh, and other macromolecules we're seeing within living cells. So there are many examples of these kinds of um, uh, liquid condensates in cells that are, that are now recognized. Uh, here are some of my favorite examples um, and I won't go through the details of these, just to say that uh, many of these structures, many dozens uh, of these structures are, are now thought to assemble 
by this liquid-liquid phase separation process. And throughout this lecture and the subsequent uh, lectures, I'll, I'll give you some uh, more details about the way in which we're thinking about these structures, uh, both in the context of physiology and disease. Now, um, uh, versions of this idea actually go back a long, a long way. So, um, one, one of uh, my favorite uh, examples is, is E.B. Wilson was a pioneering early biologist. Um, and like many of the early biologists, he was thinking in these physico-chemical terms, um, sort of the before fields had become so segregated into, you know, biology, physics, and chemistry, and, and people were really much more interdisciplinary. And so, E.B. Wilson was thinking in these terms of, of the physico-chemical driving forces in, inside of a cell, and in fact, um, had, had thought of, of the living protoplasm as a kind of liquid or a mixture of liquids uh, suspended droplets within within a cell. Uh, this is a nice picture that that I uh, pulled from the Marine Biological Lab archives. Uh, this is E. B. Wilson with a cup of tea on on the beach, and there's T. H. Morgan, another uh, really pioneering biologist. Um, and so this just shows, uh, I guess, the, the human side of of, uh, of, of biologists, uh, not only at work but also at play. Although interestingly, they uh, wore very fancy clothes to the beach. So, um, we're thinking a lot about, about these kinds of structures and the way that they're playing um, different roles in the cell. I'll try to give you some sense for that throughout these lectures. Um, we think that much like conventional organelles, uh, uh, these membraneless condensates can, can form uh, reaction crucibles, um, speeding up reaction rates. They can also sequester molecules, for example, to, to bring down the signaling activity of, uh, of, of some signaling process that you don't want to happen throughout the cell. And we think they can also play roles as organizational hubs within, within cells. So, uh, these structures can actually deform the contents of the cell in interesting ways, we think, uh, to, to, to uh, physically organize the contents of cells. So, I want to tell you a little bit more about how to think about the physics of this process from a really fundamental perspective. Um, a lot of this has to do with the concept of entropy. So entropy is a difficult thing uh, to get to get one's head around. Um, often it's compared to the tendency for disorder that we're familiar with uh, from everyday experience. This is not my bedroom, uh, but it's uh, a scene that we're all familiar with, uh, which is a, a very um, unorganized uh, room where things have gotten very chaotic. And that, of course, happens very naturally as we use things in, 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 our, in our everyday lives and put you know, books and forget to put them back exactly where they go and so forth, we have this increased tendency for disorder. And that, that idea is, is formally described in the concept of entropy, which is a very well-defined uh, physical concept in statistical mechanics and, and thermodynamics. Um, in the context of molecules and molecular organization, we can think about phase separation where we have uh, distinct types of molecules in one place and other molecules in another place as a relatively low entropy or highly organized uh, state. And so, we would expect, in general, that if we had these kind of organized states, um, low entropy states that are disfavored, that a, the system over time would transition into a higher entropy state. So, the molecules w in their uh, thermal fluctuations would, would over time start to mix with one another. And, um, and then we'd have red and green all mixed up together. So, uh, this is kind of, the high entropy state is sort of what we expect, and again, by analogy with uh, what, what we are familiar with in, in trying to keep our houses clean. Um, now, it may be surprising to you 
if I were to say, well, can this ever happen? Can you ever get spontaneous uh, uh, phase separation where a high entropy state goes to a low entropy state? So is that possible? I mean, that would be analogous to your, your room sort of spontaneously uh, fixing itself up and, and being clean. And, and that might be surprising. But in fact, that can happen if the particles uh, interact in a, in, a, in a certain way. And, and I'll tell you what that means in the next few slides. But I'll say for now that um, it, this idea that we have mixed states that can go to demixed states uh, or phase-separated states, low-entropy states, really shouldn't be that surprising um, because we, we do see it in everyday life. One of the examples is um, oil and water mixtures, salad dressing. We can shake up a bottle of salad dressing very, very uh, vigorously and we'll have initially quite mixed situation but over time, uh, it, will, it will phase separate into, um, into an oil and water uh, demixed uh, low entropy state. So uh, we are familiar with this idea that, that it can happen in, in, everyday, in everyday life. So the way in which we think about how interactions um, can, can lead to uh, phase separation or demixing can, can lead to uh, going from this high entropy, what would seem to be the favored state, into this... Uh, demixed phase-separated state, we often describe it in, in terms of a lattice model. So you notice that I've, I've now put the blue and red particles on a, on a lattice. And we can start to ask, how might the interactions between the blue and red particles um, lead to a situation where they phase-separate and demix into a distinct red and, and, a, and a distinct uh, blue phase that would correspond with phase separation? So the way in which this is described, this is a, 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 the simplest model that one can uh, think about, and I'll, I'll walk you through uh, the basics of how that works. Um, what we think about are the interactions between the particles. So we can have different types of interactions. If a blue particle is next to a blue particle, um, th then we, have, uh, we can uh, talk about the energy of that interaction as epsilon AA, if we're calling the blue particles A particles. We can also think about the red particles being next to each other and associated with an energy epsilon bb. So these would be the, the homotypic interactions. Um, of course, the opposite also occurs. We have uh, blue particles next to red particles, and that would be associated with this energy epsilon ab, the heterotypic interactions. And so um, the idea is that if the energy associated with having uh, part blue, blue and red particles next to each other, this epsilon ab, if that's very large, then the system would want to have them not be next to each other. So it would be energetically unfavored for them to be next to each other, and they would tend to want to go into this demixed state. So we, we formalize that in describing, so we would say there's an uh, interaction energy E sub unlike, so the heterotypic interactions, we're just uh, relabeling that, this epsilon AB, and then the um, homotypic interactions we can just call an average of this epsilon AA and epsilon AB. That's just an average of those uh, homotypic or like-like interactions. And the question is, is this uh, heterotypic interaction energy, the epsilon, uh, the E sub-unlike, is it uh, much larger than the, um, than the average of the homotypic interactions? And so that's often encapsulated in this term, um, in this term chi, this molecular interaction parameter, which describes the difference in the interaction energy, the epsilon um, unlike compared to the epsilon like. If that's large enough, then the system indeed will want to phase separate. And you might ask, well, what does large enough really mean? 
um, the, 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 the energy scale that we compare to is KT. This is the thermal energy scale, which is really, really important. It's something we've actually all seen, for example, in the ideal gas law, PV equals NRT. So the RT is, is KT. It's just in molar units. Here, so K, uh, K sub B is Boltzmann's constant, which basically tells you how important those en entropic driving forces that would tend to want the system to stay mixed, how important is that? Uh, and, and in this case, we're comparing the, the tendency for the system to unmix with that entropic driving force. Uh, graphically, we can visualize this on a phase diagram where um, in the mixed state where entropy wins in this battle between entropy and, and interaction energy, in the mixed state um, up here, low interaction energy or you could say relatively high temperature, um, but as you turn up the interaction uh, strength or, or this chi parameter, um, the system then would phase separate. Now, this formalism is very powerful. There's one thing that I haven't mentioned, which but um, is 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 a, is a key aspect of of uh, how this all works in, in 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 these systems, is the number of interactions that each particle can can uh, can have. Now, on this lattice, you can see that I've I've uh, only indicated the the horizontal interactions between the particles, but of course they're also interacting vertically. So I could have you know, I could think about these particles uh, with their up and down neighbors, or even on the diagonal. So the number of ways a given particle can interact with its neighbors turns out to be important. So this idea that um, the, the, the number of interactions um, is important is, is really a, a central concept here. And so we're going to talk about this, this as an interaction valency. So I can think about these particles interacting in different ways. If the particle only is able to interact in one location on its surface, then um, it can certainly have interactions with other molecules, but those tend to be, let's say, not so interesting, in that all that can really happen is they can form dimers. Two particles can get together, and then they're done. There's no more interactions possible. And so I might say that the dimension of this assembly is zero. So it's, it's, uh, it's a zero-dimensional object now that, you know, is not that interesting. Now, if I put another patch on this particle, another place it can interact, I can start to get... Uh, more interesting structures, I can get filaments um, where they start to make chains. Of course, this would be uh, a one-dimensional object, a, a linear extent uh, of, of this assembly. And I can, of course, continue that as long as I like. Now, if I put another patch on, I can start to get uh, extended structures in, in two dimensions, such as this kind of a sheet. And so you can see that the more uh, patches of, 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 that I put on these particles, the more places that they can interact with other particles, uh, the, the, the higher the dimension of the assembly. And, and in general, one would say that the more favorable it is for these assemblies to occur, the more uh, patches that they have, the more places they can interact with one another. Now, um, polymers are a type of molecule I've already mentioned in the context of the slide on soft matter. Uh, polymers are really multivalent interactors. Um, almost by definition, a polymer means um, many subunits or, or many parts. And so if each of those parts can interact, then that's a, that's a kind of um, a way in which one can get uh, high valency or, or multivalent interactions. So I can think about a polymer as a, as a, as a linear chain. Um, and on this chain, I can imagine there's little sticky spots, each one of which can interact with its neighbors. So polymer um, 
in, in that sense, is, is very much uh, like, a, like a chain, right? It's a chain of molecules. And so if the subunits of this polymer can interact, then I can start to form higher-order structures. I can start to form extended assemblies um, uh, that might be able to do something inside of a living cell. Now, polymers are everywhere in cells. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, polymers really are the building blocks of living cells. It's a, it's a, it's a really uh, powerful uh, uh, organization of, of molecules to form these large extended macromolecules. It's useful for many um, s- uh, synthetic applications and, and plastics and, and many of the consumer products we, we use are made of polymers. And so not surprisingly, biology takes advantage of polymers in living cells. Probably the most famous polymer in a living cell is, is DNA. You know, we've probably all heard of DNA. This is the, the building block uh, of life in, 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 contain, in, in that it contains the genetic information that encodes for, uh, ultimately, our, our phenotype, our traits. Um, DNA and the closely related molecule RNA, uh, which conveys the message and, and also has enzymatic activity and, and, and does a lot in the cell, is another key polymer in the cell. And then the other one, um, which I'm going to talk uh, about in the next few slides, are proteins. Often we don't think of proteins as, as polymers, but they, but they are. They are uh, chains of molecules, um, in particular chains of amino acids. And there's different flavors of these amino acids, which I've indicated with different colors here, uh, that, that uh, give rise to uh, the structure and function of proteins. Um, so um, proteins really then, as polymers, can have sort of a high degree of interactions with other molecules. Um, one of the ways this can occur has been uh, underscored by, by uh, Mike Rosen and, and colleagues, um, where we have proteins that have these well-defined uh, interaction uh, uh, modules. And if those modules are repeated in a chain, um, then there's a high tendency for the molecules to phase separate and form these condensed liquid states, as you see um, with these purified proteins in, in, uh, undergoing fusion in, in a test tube. The other key place where this, uh, this high degree of interactions, this multivalency is important, is in disordered proteins. Now, as I mentioned, proteins are linear uh, chains, or polymers, of amino acids. We, we often forget that fact because much of what a protein does in a cell um, is, is uh, a consequence of how the, this linear chain of, of amino acids folds into a compact three-dimensional shape um, that forms these beautiful structures like you see here in this, uh, this image of chaperonin. The way in which that works is that each amino acid can potentially interact with any of the other amino acids in the chain, and certain uh, uh, amino acid interactions with, with others are uh, energetically favorable, and so the, the, the chain wants to collapse and, and, and form uh, this well-defined three-dimensional structure. So that's the sort of conventional paradigm for how proteins do their thing in cells. It turns out, though, that there's another way of thinking about um, what proteins are doing and how they're assembling in cells. Many proteins actually don't do uh, this folding process very well. In fact, they only partially fold. So the interactions uh, between the amino acids within the chain, the intra-chain interactions, may be relatively weak such that the protein doesn't fold into a compact three-dimensional shape that's, that's uh, always the same. Instead, it may be fluctuating 
uh, uh, back and forth between different conformations, as you see schematically here. So this has emerged over the last decade or two as, as an important concept um, that, that plays a role in organizing cells um, that, that may be, in some cases, just as important as, as the, the concept of folded proteins. Uh, so this is a nice movie I wanted to show you that a simulation of a protein, one of these disordered proteins, uh, that I'll, I'll refer to as intrinsically disordered re regions or intrinsically disordered proteins, IDR or IDP. So what you can see in this movie is that the protein chain is fluctuating around wildly, uh, and, and those fluctuations are really important for how it's interaction, interacting with other chains in the cell, how it's interacting with itself and other chains in the cell. Uh, this is a simulation from, uh, from Rohit Papu and, and, and Alex Holhouse uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Now, these disordered proteins, um, as I said, they're interacting with themselves in this, the amino acids interact in an intra-chain fashion, as you see in these uh, dashed lines. But those same kinds of interactions can, of course, occur between chains, inter-chain interactions. So if I put another uh, disordered protein in there, uh, then it, they can interact from one chain to the next. And if they can do that, well, then if I have a whole uh, uh, solution of, of these kinds of proteins, then they can actually interact and form uh, effectively types of networks uh, that extend and, and, and allow you to build higher order structure, much as I described for... Uh, the multivalent stickers in, the, in this uh, these patchy colloid picture, if you like, or in the in the uh, in the context of uh, you know, general polymeric systems as multivalent interactors. So um, these kinds of proteins, these intrinsically disordered proteins, are, are are really important. They're found in lots of different uh, proteins in cells. I'm showing them schematically here for some of the my favorite examples of of proteins. Um, often, it's not the whole protein that's disordered, but it's some region of the protein, as you can see in, the, in these uh, blue squiggles that represent the, the parts that are fluctuating around uh, and, and have this conformational heterogeneity. So it turns out that proteins that have this feature um, um, readily, uh, often readily phase separate into condensed liquid states, as you see in some of these examples here. So these proteins, when we purify them, and look in a test tube, they, they form condensed liquid states that are likely important for uh, driving assembly of the endogenous structure in living cells, for example, pea granules or uh, these uh, punctin and in, in, in fun fun uh, fungus ashbia or in, uh, in uh, nucleoli, as I'll tell you about in the next few uh, lectures. So I've been telling you about the liquid state and, um, you know, the, the concept of phase transitions, liquid-liquid phase separation or condensation of these molecules into the liquid state. But I explained how that works um, by talking about water. And so we're all familiar then with the fact that water can exist in these different, uh, these different states. And as you see in this beautiful image, uh, water can also form um, ice, right? It can form the, these solid states. So what about in a living cell? Are there different states of matter in a living cell beyond the soluble gas-like state that can transition into a liquid state, or are there, are there more solid-like states um, uh, that can form and that may be doing interesting things inside of a cell? Now, it turns out that many of the proteins that I've, I've been describing that, that have these intrinsically disordered regions are proteins that are also um, important uh, drivers for uh, diseases in cells. 
So there are a number of devastating diseases um, that are associated with uh, protein aggregation, so irreversible protein aggregation, where proteins get together and, and don't ever get apart, essentially. Um, and these are diseases like um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, Alzheimer's, um, very common disease which uh, affects many people, including people in my, my own family, um, and, and the prion diseases like mad cow disease. So what is the relationship between these liquid states and the disordered proteins that are playing key roles in driving assembly uh, of these physiological structures in all of our cells and uh, the, the way in which those, those same proteins under some conditions can form pathologies like these in, in, uh, in diseased cells. Um, so one of the ways that we've been thinking about this for a while is that just like uh, water can go from a gas to a liquid to a solid state and, and everything in between, uh, and, you know, solid to liquid and so forth, um, we think that biomolecules can also undergo these kinds of transitions. In other words, uh, proteins and RNA and perhaps also DNA can transition from a soluble state uh, to a condensed liquid state and then can also form these solids, which in many cases we believe underlie the pathologies that, that, that I just described that are in these neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so there, there may be then danger buried in the cytoplasm. Uh, so the, the, these uh, molecular interactions that are important for uh, driving the assembly of physiological structures in our, our healthy cells may also be, um, uh, uh, we may be at risk that those same interactions could go awry and cause problems in the cell. And uh, there's quite a bit of evidence that this, 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 this may be occurring in cells uh, this is an example um, of the protein We3, which is a, um, uh, a, a poly-Q protein, not unlike that found in Huntington's disease, um, which over time, it, it, it will phase separate into these liquid droplets, but over time, those droplets will uh, start to form uh, solid inclusions and harden over time. Uh, something very similar is seen with the ALS-related RNA binding protein, HNRNPA1. It forms these liquid droplets, but over time, those can uh, uh, harden and form pathological solid uh, fibril inclusions. And something similar in this striking image um, of the protein FUS, uh, or FUS, if you like, over time, uh, it goes from a liquid state to a, a solid state that can even have these really dramatic uh, crystalline morphologies. So um, this idea then of uh, what we call uh, you know, liquid phase condensation or, or more formally liquid-liquid phase separation seems to be important um, for a whole uh, host of biological processes, both uh, healthy cells and disease cells. Um, the, the, the way in which what we call the metastability or the, the, the way in which the droplets can form these solid states probably plays key roles in, in the function, in particular, uh, the flow of genetic information from DNA to RNA to protein, uh, and, and the way in which that may be inhibited under uh, perhaps uh, these pathological conditions. Liquid-liquid um, phase separation can also structure the, these droplets in more rich and interesting ways, which I'll tell you about in the next lecture, where we can have uh, multi-phase coexistence um, between different types of droplets which I think is very interesting and, and probably uh, important for, for many different types of structures in cells. So I started out this lecture um, by, uh, you know, introducing this, this way of thinking about 
the analogy, uh, which we said was really incomplete, but this way of thinking about uh, the building blocks of these biological systems as akin somehow to uh, the way in which the parts of a car come together. And, and we, you know, we said that that was only uh, partially helpful. What's probably more helpful is using ideas um, from fields like soft condensed matter physics um, and, and chemical engineering and, and other areas where uh, people have been thinking about the rules that govern assembly of um, molecules that are much like the biomolecules we're studying. Uh, and in those contexts, it's often about uh, applications or, or you know, fundamental insights into non-living matter. Um, and so if we think about the contents of a cell and, and these, these beautiful organelle structure within the cell um, and the way in which they're organized, um, we saw that some types of organelles indeed can be thought of these as, as kind of soap bubbles, the membrane-bound vesicle-like structures. But many of them that I've been telling you about throughout this talk are probably uh, better described as condensed liquid states within the cell. Um, and that's helpful for us because we can then start to use the formalisms uh, that have been developed in these other areas and apply them within what is a much more rich and, and to my view, interesting uh, place, which is within a living cell. So I'd like to thank you for your attention. Um, uh, I, I want to thank the members of my group um, who've uh, been really instrumental in, in helping us uh, uh, you know, uh, push this field forward and the funding agencies that have helped make it possible. And thank you for your attention.